What up, what up, what up, everybody? Thank you for joining me for this episode. I have another great conversation for you. Uh, this episode, I traveled to Frankfurt, to the Frankfurt Institute of Advanced Studies, to speak with Sasha Vogel. Uh, Sasha's a great guy. He's not really involved on a day-to-day basis in the research in the lab that's going on at the Institute, uh, but he's very knowledgeable of basically all the projects that are going on there. And he did his doctorate in physics, so he's also very knowledgeable in physics. He schooled me on some of the some of the things that were going on there because uh, if you've listened to this show, you know I am completely ignorant of physics. Um, so we talked a little bit about that. We talked a lot about science communication. Again, I know that's becoming quite a theme here on this show, but um, it was fun because he's, like I said, really interesting guy um, easy to talk to and he's quite involved in science communication he runs a, a small company website called sciencebirds.de where basically you can go there and sort of hire him for one of his shows that he does he has a number of different shows that he does or lectures that he does uh, he can prepare things you know specifically for the event that you're doing um, or just come and speak. He does a physics in Hollywood uh, series, basically, you know, breaking down the physics in, in different movies and stuff like that. Um, so some of it is in English, uh, a lot of it is in German, but I don't know, sciencebirds.de is worth checking out. Uh, I first met him after I saw him speak at the March for Science in Frankfurt, and we talk a little bit about that, but he's really kind of the first guy that I reached out to. Uh, when I moved here um, to, to sort of get in touch in the sort of science communication field. I was still doing my PhD at that time and looking to get into uh, doing science writing, journalism, communication, all that good stuff that I do now. And so having him you know, answer my email and, and invite me to this workshop was really, really great. I'm sort of big thank you, Sasha. Uh, for doing that and then thank you for coming on the show and 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 chatting with me for for an hour or so um i'll kind of leave it there i don't want to go too much into what we talked about it's a really great conversation i hope you enjoy it uh, i hope we can do it again um frankfurt's not too far from where i am and so hopefully sasha and i can sit down and do this again because i really really enjoyed it um and there's lots of really great research going on at the Frankfurt Institute of Advanced Studies, which we didn't get to touch on. Um, and so I'd love to go back there and, you know, maybe speak with some more people or speak with Sasha again. Um, but yeah, leave it at that. Let you enjoy this conversation. As always, the freaks are going to bring us in. Uh, and then it's on to my conversation with Sasha Vogel. So, thanks for, for inviting me yeah no not a problem I mean I guess we could give a little bit of context too is that we actually we did we have met before 
We did, yes. Yeah, you organized the you know, it was a workshop, sort of week It was a workshop called uh, Interdisciplinary Science Communication. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, last year, 2017. Yeah, and that was here at the Frankfurt Institute of Advanced Studies. Exactly. Um, yeah, and I thought it was really nice. I mean, it was quite nice. So we we got in contact with lots of people. Actually, I guess usually don't get into contact with each other. Yeah. So yeah, we yeah. had scientists from various areas. So mostly natural scientists, yeah. uh, but also some from other areas. And we had people from uh, politics even. So you remember that's the, right, yeah, yeah. Um, from the Bayerische Amt für Umweltschutz. So it's basically the the Bavarian state uh, environmental environmental agency, something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. Um, trying to figure out how to actually talk about their their stuff they're doing. So it was a quite good mix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, it was great. And for me too, like I had like more or less just arrived in Germany and was had ambitions of doing science communication stuff. So it was really great for me. Um, but yeah, so it was at the Institute of Advanced Studies, which is where we are now. Um, and I was just taking a look at the, the website that, you know, like you had sent me, like this is the sort of research mm -hmm. that's going on. And it seems like, like how much of it, I guess my question is how much of the research is application based and how much do is it within the different programs sort of feeding off one another because the topic mm. range is quite wide yes neuroscience i, I saw some economic stuff yep. computing physics biology so is it is when you when it's advanced studies is there a gearing it towards application no and absolutely how much not. it's not absolutely not so it's all fundamental science yeah so the idea was like what is it now 15 years ago roughly mm. um you have all the the programs were experimentalists, especially in physics. So the, mm. the founder was a physicist, or one of the two founders was a physicist, the other a neuroscience guy, um, said, okay, we have all those programs where experimentalists get together and have, um, well, collaborations, and nothing exists like that for theoreticians. So the idea of the, the Frankfurt Institute for Advanced Studies was you get together theoreticians from various uh, fields, so mostly at that time, physics, biology, and chemistry, so neuroscience as mm -hmm. one of the main driving forces, and do fundamental science. So over the years, so we had a lot of high-performance computing coming in, a bit of economics, you said, there was mm -hmm. a, um, a scholar paid for that. And currently, though, we are doing mostly physics, neuroscience, those are the well, let's call it two big blocks. Mm -hmm. So what we call life sciences are, is coming more and more. Mm -hmm. A bit of economy, economics, but it's all fundamental science. Yeah. So machine learning is currently coming in because it's basically a gap or a bridge between, between the, the disciplines. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's something I'd like to get to. But so, it's, it's a, the Institute was sort of, it had this idea of fostering collaboration yeah. or, you know, bringing all these things into one, yeah. Okay, which is interesting because, well, I didn't know that. And it's a, it's a good point, like you said, a lot of the application people have this already. Mm -hmm. And so it's be, you've been, what, well, you might not have been here for 15 years. Yeah, but certainly <laughs> not. <laughs> but I actually, actually uh, small anecdote, uh, I experienced uh, the founding of the Institute because of the founder, Walter Kreiner, he died, I think, two years ago. Yeah. He was a theoretical physicist. And I was in his lecture while he founded the Institute and yeah. he always told about the progress and yeah. it was actually quite fun. Yeah. 
And that's you. You did your graduate work in physics, right? Yes. In theoretical physics. Theoretical physics and heavy ion physics, basically. Mm -hmm. so and and so is that is that one of the things that's going on here? Yes, actually, yes. So we are. Yeah, that's actually Walter Kreiner was one of the the main driving forces in Germany concerning heavy ion physics. Mm. So of course, heavy ion physics was one of the topics and fears. Um, so is it? Let me get because yeah. I'm ignorant to physics. Okay. <laughs> heavy ion we'll, physics. We'll change that. Yeah, yeah. Heavy ion physics. This is in the same vein as particle physics. It's 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 a dirty particle physics. It's called. So, so you you some people call it working with larger. You're not. This isn't the type of thing that they'd be doing sort of at the big colliders. Oh yeah, they, they do. They do. Okay. But instead of having like the proton and the proton basically smashing together. Yeah. That would would be particle physics. We do it with well heavy ions as the name suggests. Mm -hmm. So we basically take for whatever gold and gold and smash them together and mm -hmm. see what happens or lead lead or some people use uranium uranium and well it's also done at the the Large Hadron Collider mm -hmm. so you have the the four big experiments which is CMS uh, Atlas as the two main big ones they're doing particle physics mostly but they also have a heavy ion program. Mm -hmm. Uh, the LHCB and there is Alice, which is a large ion collider experiment, and they basically exclusively do heavy ion physics at mm -hmm. the LHC. And so, and that's one of the one of the things that's happening here. Um, but so, what's the goal? Like, you smash gold and gold together. What are you looking for? So basically, you try to understand what happens. So the basically the the main I mean, that's idea science, right? Yeah, <laughs> you yeah, try to understand what. <laughs> so. The main idea is when you when you start with proton proton at such energies, you will always want to find new particles and right. understand the processes this in is detail. Like the and they exactly. find all that kind exactly. of stuff. We, yeah. we have that as well. But what you also want to do is when you, for example, use gold on gold, you have a small medium formed, and that medium is basically, as you call it, deconfined. So what happens is, instead of having the the singular um, protons and neutrons and whatnot. Um, you have one big soup of quarks and gluons. So usually the quarks and gluons, or the constituents of, of protons, for example, or particles in general, they are bound into the particle. It's mm -hmm. called confinement. Mm -hmm. So they are, they are theoretical concept or well, natural nature's well, natural concepts, um, binding them into a particle. Right. And if they try to get further than, for example, usually like one Fermi, so one femtometer. Um, they get basically sucked back into the particle. Right, so this is what keeps the particle together. Exactly, right. that basically gives you the size of the particle. Right, yeah. However, if you smash enough of them together, high enough speed or high enough, um, with high enough energy, you basically, they all overlap and you get a big soup of quarks and gluons. Ah. And that's basically, in, let's call it a new state of matter, the quark-gluon plasma. And if you actually go back in the history of the universe, like shortly after the Big Bang, and shortly means something like whatever, 10 to the minus 5 seconds. So, so very shortly. Very shortly. After. Well, <laughs> depending on what time scales you're working right, on. Right, so right. for some particle physicists, that's like... For the guy waiting for the train, it's exactly, incredibly short. <laughs> um, so 10 to the minus, roughly 10 to the minus 5 seconds after the Big Bang. That's basically the, the state we, or the, the, the matter we had in the universe. So we're basically going hmm. back in time when it comes to to the universe. Yeah. And so then at this level, like you smash gold and gold or lead and lead together. So they're no longer, if I'm understanding correctly, it's no longer like it, each, each particle in what was the gold 
exist as a single particle. They're exactly. all sort of this mixture. Exactly. It's a plasma. Yeah. It's a plasma, it's, right? The quark lone soup, some yeah, people yeah, call it as well. Yeah. And so and then so after the Big Bang, when there was high energy, all of you know, these sort of things, mm. that's what existed. And so then the idea is then you can take a, a look at how matter formed, formed exactly. throughout so the universe. The, one, one of the things we certainly can say, uh, because we observe it all the day, is you never see a single quark or gluon. Hmm. Never has been observed. So they always, with some, in some shape or form, they recombine or form or had, it's called hadronization, hmm. um, where you basically go from quarks and gluons to hadrons. Hadrons are basically particles like uh, protons, neutrons, pions, okay. whatnot. So basically, every, yeah. is it like the, the, well, the, well, it's particles. Yeah, so the ones that people are familiar exactly. with. Exactly, the, the, the usual, the non-elementary particles. Yeah. Um, and what you want to understand, for example, is how does that work? How do you go from a soup of quarks and gluons, yeah. which had to exist at some point in the universe because you you did not start out with okay here's a planet yeah you right. went from okay here is a gas cloud okay what does a gas cloud exist of okay we need single particles so like atoms oh atoms also consist of something how did we get there so we had a core and the electrons okay how did we get the core oh the core is protons and neutrons how did we come to the protons and so on so yeah. we're basically trying to understand how matter formed so right. we are and this is basically on a very early stage. So you have quarks and gluons. How do we go to the, well, next step in the, in the line? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so far, I mean, there are a couple of good ideas, but on a very basic, on a very <laughs> fundamental level, it's not really understood yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which is funny. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think, I mean, I think sometimes it, it's with physics. And I mean, physics is one that I think everybody, myself included, likes to hear about likes to sort of talk about but it's very difficult because these concepts are very foreign to people you're talking about time scales that are yeah. you know very small and you know the breaking of matter and particles and all this stuff and it's really easy to get wowed by it you know mm -hmm. and I, I guess my question or my thought is like how much do we know like in some senses, it feels like we know nothing, but in other, in other, you know, articles or whatever I read, people will be like, well, you know, we got a pretty good idea of, you know, the Big Bang is pretty much a certainty and all these things. So what, where would you fall out on that? It's, uh, especially in science in general, but I can talk for physics because that's why I know it. Yeah. You never really know, I would say. So, right. Yeah. I mean, whenever you say, you know, this and that works, somebody comes around the corner and say, I have a new theory and... 100 years later, you say, okay, we were not quite sure at that time. I mean, so, but in physics, to current, let's, I always say to current knowledge. So yeah. it might be completely different in 200 years and everybody mm -hmm. laughs at us like, oh, look at the guys in 2018. They didn't know about this and that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, just as we look back and like 300 years ago and say, oh, Newton, he didn't even know quantum mechanics. Yeah. yeah he yeah. couldn't have, that's, that's fine. Yeah. So, but to current knowledge, um, we have a pretty good grasp on about 45% of the universe. Mm. So that's what we call the observable matter, the baryonic matter, as we call it. Yeah. Um, which are the particles I've just described, the protons, neutrons, yeah. and so on. So basically, the thing we consist of. Right. The stars, galaxies, people. Yeah. Um, All the elements we've discovered. The elements, yeah. hydrogen, carbon, and so on. So we know about that. 
we we know that there has to be more mm. and why do we know that because we know that gravity is a thing mm. so that certainly works everybody hopefully agrees <laughs> um I don't know. We uh, haven't gone to some corners yeah. of YouTube yet. Yeah, we let, might let, find. Yeah, let, let me check outside the window. There is uh, nobody floating. Yeah. <laughs> so the gravity works, and also gravity works in, on a on a well cosmological level. So basically, just by looking at how planets and stars and so on and everything moves, um, so we we know that there has to be something. Otherwise, things would move differently. Right. However, we don't know what that is. Mm. And there are certain observations, for example, the WMAP ex, uh, experiments and so on, where you can, can get a good idea of how it should be distributed and so on. But it's called then dark matter and dark energy. Right. This and I've heard of. Yeah. Exactly. For example, that's what, what the LHC is looking for. For example, particles which could be what we call the dark matter candidate or dark energy, a uh, dark matter candidate, sorry. Um, but so far, nothing has been found. Right which is uh, interesting enough. Yeah, that one always kind of freaks me out, you know, and, uh, I, but again, it's the, you know, the sort of like tip of the spear sort of, yeah. we, this is the great unknown, but it's basically, so you have these equations that show how things move. And so we can use those equations to predict, you know, planetary movements mm -hmm. and all this stuff based on gravity. But in order for those predictions and equations to work, there's like this unknown variable. Exactly. Yeah, right. And that's what we term dark energy or dark yeah. matter. Dark matter and dark yeah. energy. Yeah. yeah. So then... But we call it dark because we don't know what it is. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Let's be blunt here. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I guess even when you put a name on it, people might think, oh, well, we have some sort of idea. Yeah. But there really is no... I mean, there are plenty of ideas. But okay, but nothing... I mean, the theories, it's... Right. But physics in the end is an empirical, an experimental subject. I mean, yeah. In the end, you need an experiment which says this is it yeah 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 but if it's something you know so foreign to to the con like you know we have but i guess it's the same newton wouldn't be able to understand mm -hmm. what a particle was or what a neutron was mm -hmm. and all this stuff so for us we're looking at this thing and like we've got a really good grasp of like matter mm -hmm. that we can see or that we can not see but you know observe mm -hmm. with the certain instruments so it just seems to me that it's like like wait like how do you know to where to even look if it's something that our instruments can't even detect? Or does this come down to the point where it's like, we need to be b building different instruments? Um, I think that's not really solved yet. I mean, you, you could say, okay, for example, um, there, there, there was a theory which is called supersymmetry, or it still is, um, where you say, okay, you have certain particles, we can detect them, they interact, in some shape or form. Mm -hmm. However, they don't interact in other shapes or forms. So, and that's where you basically, for, for example, you have other series, which are the, the WIMPs, the weakly interacting matter particles. Mm -hmm. So you say they, they are there, they interact by gravitation or gravity, but they don't interact with other um, forces. Like magnetism, so, or like something? electromagnetism, or okay. other things. Yeah. So there is always an idea, and but it's basically looking at okay, let's try something. Yeah. So there is no, I mean, when you don't really know what you're looking for, there is never, there's never a straight path in science. Right. Right. I mean, you just try things out and see what works. Yeah. That's basically how all of science works. I mean, unless you have 
well, a new field yeah. and the first steps are quite clear sometimes, but yeah, yeah. usually when you are at a point where you don't know where you're going, you just try things out, which is yeah. fine. So absolutely, yeah. that's why, why scientists are paid basically, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, or are being paid for. Yeah, but I think that sometimes people don't understand that. You yeah, know, absolutely. That, that you need this sort of, yeah, people sort of throwing darts into the darkness to hopefully find something to then lead, you know, lead the next, yeah. the next step. And that's what basic research is. And I, I think sometimes people don't understand that. And it's, I think especially, I know like in Canada, yeah, I've said this before on this podcast, but the previous government to the one we have now sort of really heavily defunded basic research oh, that's because, awesome. yeah, because they were just like, well, let's go to something applicable, something that we can use right away that will make money or whatever. And that was a big thing, but I, I just, yeah, I sometimes think that I don't, I don't know if people really understand that. Um, and then this physics example is a great example because with dark matter, it's like we, you really, you really don't know where to go, so you got to yeah, just keep trying things. I mean, my, my favorite example is that so when you take the the, the theory of general relativity, Albert Einstein, nineteen sixteen, mm -hmm. um, you take it and ask people, okay, is it good for anything? Yeah. And the usual answer is no, absolutely not. I don't, I don't know what it is about. Some people have an idea of, oh, it's about gravitation and how planets move and stuff like that. And, yeah. But we don't need it for anything. I mean, it's just a mathematical yeah. game. Yeah, it's just for these nerds to exactly. have fun with. Exactly, yeah. it's basically for all the just to keep the physicists happy. Yeah. And then I usually take my cell phone out of my pocket and say, okay, without general relativity or GI as we call it, this wouldn't work properly. Right. Because all the GPS positioning yeah. does not work without general relativity. Right. Because what you do is basically you have, um, just on a very basic level, you need three satellites. Mm. You triangulate and see, okay, the signal from your cell phone basically goes to satellite A this long, to B this long, to C this long, and then you try to find where you are. Right. However, you are in a, in a gravitational field. Yeah. Which you know, and it basically distorts the the ways. So you cannot really say um, the way here. Well, let's make an example. Um, the space basically is not as flat as we think. Mm. So, and this is basically what general relativity relativity tells you. And if you don't apply those corrections, I mean, they are pretty minor if you compare them to the scales you're looking at. Yeah. But I think for, for cell phone GPS, it makes a difference of something like 10 to, I think, 15 meters, something like that. Right, right. And it makes a lot of difference whether you're on the, the right side of the highway or the wrong side of the highway, <laughs> which is 10 meters. So yeah. it has a very practical application, yeah. a very, very practical application. Everybody uses it. Yeah. And if we had not discovered it like 100 years ago now, mm. we, we couldn't do it. Yeah. And there are so many other, so many more examples where fundamental science, like 30, 40, 50 years later, actually went into application. Yeah. But it takes that long Absolutely. sometimes. And sometimes you don't, you, yeah. most of the time you don't know, like it's, Einstein didn't come up with this thinking, no, in a hundred years, we're going to have these computers in our pocket and satellites Absolutely. and all this stuff. Right? Or, yes. I mean, all the protocols you, you use for transferring data. Yeah. for the hypertext transfer protocols and so on everything basically the, the internet is built on was not done by Facebook 
Yeah. <laughs> it was done by fundamental scientists trying things out. Oh, can we actually do that over yeah, such yeah. a long cable? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or can we actually a transistor, which is basically the, the foundation of microchips and cell phones and computers and whatnot, people try it out. Yeah. Whether yeah. it's useful or not. Yeah, right, exactly. So and that's yeah, so that's you know maybe not exactly the well, who knows, maybe the stuff that you're that you're finding here. At the, at the institute one day has some kind of application but this Maybe. is you know we're still in the very theoretical but I, I give you another example which is very applicable by now and do you know Prague it was a father and son they got a Nobel Prize 1915 1916 no, some, something like that no. so Whoever fact checks, uh, I think yeah. it was 1916, but I'm not sure. <laughs> we won't hold your yeah. feet to the fire on it. Th that would be nice. <laughs> um, basically, what they discovered that when you take ions, so for example, a carbon ion, mm -hmm. um, and put it into matter, shoot it with a certain velocity, it has a very interesting way of distributing its energy. Mm. So usually when you take, for example, photons and electrons, and you shoot it at something, they, let's say the, the tank of water, and you shoot an electron at a tank of water, they lose most of the energy at the surface, mm. and then some of the, the energy basically goes into it, but it's exponentially or so the case. Mm. So as you expect, basically, you hit it, and on the surface, most of the thing happen, and the more you get into the matter, the less happens. Yeah. If you take an ion, for example, carbon, that's the most famous, um, it actually, at the surface, Depending on velocity, there's, you can always calculate that. Not much happens, but at a certain distance, a couple of centimeters usually, it loses basically all of its energy and then nothing again. Hmm. And that has been fundamental science and nobody really cared why, why should we use it. Well, yeah. it's a nice finding, but who cares? Yeah, it's interesting, but so exactly. what? Exactly, yeah. so what, exactly. Yeah. Of course, it had its applications in other fundamental research because you could do um, when analysis of, I don't know, crystals and stuff like that. But Sure, yeah. So other scientists exactly. could use that. Too. Yeah. yeah. And somewhat, in, I think in the 70s, maybe, again, don't hold me to that too strictly. But there has been, I, I assume it went like that. I, I don't know the whole story. But when you, when you have the medical problem, and I assume a doctor talked to a physicist at that point, mm -hmm. oh, we have that, uh, the tumor in the head, mm. the brain tumor. And if we, well, shoot with electrons at it, we basically destroy the rest of the brain because if the, let's assume the tumor is right in the middle, yeah. well, most of the energy is deposited yeah. on the surface. So you basically, yes, you get the tumor, but you also get the rest of the brain. Yeah. This is like a chemotherapy type. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the radiation and chemotherapy. Yes. Yeah. And what you can do, you put, uh, pull some tricks and say, okay, you shoot from various angles and then it basically has an interference in the middle and you get a bit less on the surface and a bit more in the middle and all that. And at some point, somebody said, okay, why not use ions? Hmm. Because on the surface, nothing happens. Everything happens in between or in the uh, middle. And then nothing happens again. Yeah. And then they did that, and that's actually running very successfully. Yeah. So you, you can target that you can basically exactly. avoid the tissue that you don't want to exactly. get. Exactly. Yeah. You have, well, pretty much no side effects. Yeah. 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 And you, I mean, there's currently 
the, the question of fragmentation and stuff like that. Yeah. But certainly less, much less side effect than, than conventional therapy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which again, it, it was fundamental science. Now we are curing brain tumors with it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, to me, it was always like, I'm, but I mean, and I, I, I imagine you're kind of the same way. It's like a, a fan of science, right? Like yeah. we both sort of studied this, got into it. So to me, like, I never thought about having to justify it. To me, it always made sense. You know, there was these applications that we might mm -hmm. not find yet. To me, it was also too like this, like getting back to the, the dark matter stuff. It's just like, why wouldn't you want to know? Uh, absolutely. And, 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 and why isn't it like, this is why I always say to people, it's like now is sort of the best time to be alive. Obviously we've got like great progress and things like this, but it's also, you're always, the next discovery is just around the yep. corner, the next big thing, you know? Yep. So you're kind of staring into the void being like, what could be out there? And to me, yep. that, that should, you know, that's motivation enough. I think a lot of scientists feel that way, mm -hmm. but yeah but it's nice to be able to have these practical things to sort of say yeah because that was a, a you know another topic that i wanted to bring up with you because i first when i first got to germany um i became aware of you and your work and your role here through the march for science because mm. you gave a talk at the oh, march really? for science that's when we met we didn't we met there. and we didn't meet we okay. didn't meet there but okay. i saw you give this talk oh nice <laughs> Which led me to send you an email. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and I know that's one of the functions that you do. And one of the things that you're sort of, I guess we could say passionate about mm -hmm. is, is communicating science. So you're kind of the first person in Germany that I could really speak to about mm -hmm. this to maybe for people oh. that are listening outside of Germany, what's the sort of level of. You know, it seems like every country is dealing with this sort of, and the U.S. Mm -hmm. is the big example because that's where all the media, at least the English media, mm -hmm. you get this rejection of science, this sort of, you know, vaccines is obviously the big one. And yeah. I know Germany's having a problem with that. But overall, like, what do you think as being a German scientist communicator with the level of, you know, sort of engagement, acceptance politically and with the public? So currently... The, the problem is not as big as in the US or with all the climate change skeptics mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. vaccination is another thing. Or for example, in Turkey or Poland, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, just to name a few famous examples. However, when you, when you look at the political landscape in Germany, now we have a party, usually, well, in the, in the polls at around 15-ish percent. And they are basically rejecting also the idea of climate change and mm -hmm. so on. And if you, if you talk to people, you always have, I mean, I just became a father and you get in talks with other families and lots of them are actually questioning vaccination and so on. Mm -hmm. So we are not in the, in the safe haven, if you like, in, in the world where mm -hmm. everybody believes in science. I think we are not there yet where, for example, the US is. Mm -hmm. However, we are slowly taking up speed. Yeah. And I believe we certainly should make sure that we, well, ideally stop right away with the distrust in science. Mm -hmm. However, we certainly should make sure that all the scientists also at some point speak up and say, no, there is, there is a reason we study this for whatever, five, 10, 15, 20 years. Mm -hmm. And that we actually have a certain expertise when it comes to our topics. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because when you, when you, for example, vaccination is a very faint, very nice example. You have the, all the institutes, uh, the Robert Koch and the, the, in German it's called the Ständige Impfkommission. It's basically the, um, the permanent commission on vaccination. Mm -hmm. 
um, which basically analyzes all the data and says, okay, ideally you should do this, this, and this. Right. Um, for you, like to the schedule of vaccines. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So. At a at the age of X, you should do vaccination Y and Z. Yeah, yeah, something yeah, like that. Yeah, um, and they basically analyze all the data. They're scientists. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, however, you always have that. Okay, I, I have a feeling some people have more trust in a, a mother talk, talking about her story on Facebook mm -hmm. compared to we did five thousand studies with twenty thousand children. Yeah. So, well, I think uh, I think the, the the trend is that people do have more trust in that. Yeah, part. and and they shouldn't. Yeah, they shouldn't. So they shouldn't because it, it's one thing is data and one thing is a story. Yeah. And yeah, the story yeah. is important. I, I fully agree and sometimes the story is sad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. However, it's one of there are for each sad story there are I don't know 10,000 good stories. Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. they are not being told. Mm -hmm. So do you think that that's maybe like where sort of the science advocacy or thing is lacking is in telling good stories or compelling stories even it's, i think it's uh, that might actually be a nice a nice idea of having having pro examples like positive examples of this work because of science and mm -hmm. i think those stories it's the same in the news basically when you look at the news you always have negative news right yeah, yeah there's yeah. never a story on hooray yeah so this and this happened yeah this building really. didn't burn down e exactly <laughs> so i think that might be one thing um but it's also a matter of trust i believe right so when you when I gave the coming back to the March for Science, I, I talked about that on stage. Mm -hmm. So I I found out that I was basically so I was asked whether I want to talk about that about science and why science is important. And then I thought, okay, yeah, why not? I didn't to be honest, I had no clue what the March for Science is. Mm -hmm. So I'm not on social media, so I really <laughs> didn't follow it. Um and then I read some, some reporter called me and, yeah, what are you going to talk about on Saturday? I was like, oh, it's, it's Wednesday. I, I don't know what I'm going to talk about. Yeah. Like, gazillion days. Yeah. <laughs> and, oh, but, but you're so prominently placed. And I was basically after the, uh, what was it? The head mayor, the university president, the other university president, yeah. and another university president, and then it was me. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh shit! <laughs> I have to come up with some data and knowledge and numbers and facts and yeah. whatnot. You really put the pressure on you. Exactly, <laughs> and I didn't know, so yeah. they said oh, I'll do five minutes and it should be somewhat funny. Yeah. Um, but then I got an email by by one guy basically pointing me. Oh yeah, the March for Science, you know. Oh, you know what kind of people these are? And he sent me a couple of links. And so I looked at these links and the well the the websites basically said, okay, all scientists are either paid by the, the by big pharma or right. the intelligence agencies yeah, and yeah, yeah. and I don't know what kind of companies. Yeah. So it's all conspiracy evil theories. Company, evil evil yeah. companies. Yeah, yeah. And to be honest, I I if some big pharma company wants to support me, I can glad you give me my email address. Yeah, yeah, yeah. However, it didn't happen really yet. Yeah. <laughs> so also the intelligence agencies are gladly invited to pay me loads of money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so far, it unfortunately has not happened yet. Yeah, but that's what you would say if they were. No. <laughs> maybe, 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 yes. Uh, 
However, if somebody wants, to, somebody else wants to pay me a lot yeah. of money, okay. I'm open for funding as well. Yeah, feel, feel if we're, free, if we're yeah. doing that, then exactly. yeah, let's get that out. Of let's the way. set up an account and, yeah. and share the profits. Yeah. <laughs> However, the the problem is this does not happen. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Of course. Uh, if you have scientists at pharmaceutical companies, of course they want to promote their products and mm-hmm. so on. Mm-hmm. However, all the scientists in the in the public sector, they're hardworking people. I mean, look at all the PhD students yeah. working their ass off just to find out something tiny they can yeah. use to to get their PhD. Yeah. Yeah. And which hopefully, like we were saying, fifty years from now, exactly. may be part of something that yeah, yeah. exactly. But that that's not what they're doing. They're not looking at in fifty years that no, can no, be no, applied. No, no. they're doing it because it's fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. However, at some point, we put as much trust into into people saying no, all science is bullshit, as and they they don't even do science. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They have no and experience. With no them. experience whatsoever, usually as compared to the people who are actually doing it for like whatever 10 15 20 25 years mm-hmm. i think that's well troubling that that is troubling yeah. we should i mean when when I, when my car breaks down i don't go to somebody uh, yep yeah, you never repair a car maybe want to give it a try <laughs> i go to an expert and that's basically what we also should do when it comes to science right yeah and currently we're going to the mother on facebook yeah well but i think it's important i mean cuz it gets kind of frustrating, I think, for people in our position that sort of work in this area, because we can say these things, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, but there's, and this is something that's come up in a number of different uh, podcasts. Is like there's a thread that has gone mm-hmm. through this, in which the first one I did of these, I talked to a guy who he's pretty well known in Canada. He was on TV in Canada doing science shows for decades, um, and then I talked to you know my PhD supervisor, mm-hmm. right? and the motivations, you know. Are, are, are they the conversation was definitely different the guy who's worked in media is like you can't just beat people over the head with these sort of facts mm-hmm. or these sort of things right and then you talk to the academics and it's like well why do you why do you do science communication why do you think it's important because I want to promote evidence-based thinking and policy mm-hmm. and all this stuff and there's a real conflict here and then it's like the message isn't getting through obviously mm-hmm. and there seems to be some sort of even just like fundamental reluctance that if you tell people this, even if we tell them, you know, the, the car thing, you wouldn't take your car to it. They'll find a way to be like, well, yeah, but that's different or this or that or, you know. So it's, it's just as I'm talking to different people about this, mm-hmm. it, this same thing sort of keeps coming up. And it's just like, I don't know what the solution is. I don't know either. Yeah. So. Right. So. I think the one of the things science communication has done wrong in the in the last I don't know decades if you like we talked lots and lots about the findings so we found new particles x we y z and we have found a new whatever way of doing this and however we know, we didn't talk in my book enough about the the way of doing science the the, the way of thinking mm-hmm. The process. The process, the scientific process. We did not talk about that mm-hmm. enough. We certainly did, and some people more than others. However, I think the way of well, the way of a scientist to think is much much different from a non-scientist. Mm. And it's basically you have well, if you look at politics as an example, um, people try to find the arguments basically to to fit their their ideology, if you like. Mm-hmm. 
However, as a scientist, you're trained to, okay, these are the facts. What is the next step? Yeah. So, and what's the possible exactly. meaning or conclude? Yeah. And okay, I saw that it might be that, but now we have two more facts. It cannot be that anymore. So we have to change our thinking. Yeah. You're always adapting. Yeah. And this has not been done. This way of thinking has not been promoted enough, mm -hmm. I believe. But I wonder too, I mean, like some, at some level, I mean, we should, I, we should talk to a psychologist or something too about this, because on some level, I think there is like people have, you know, their position, their idea and the idea, the, the thought of sort of saying, no, I was wrong is like an emotional process to them. Mm -hmm. You know, like it's, yeah. it's somehow admitting, you know, I was wrong. I'm, you know, either not intelligent or I don't like, mm -hmm. I don't know what that motivation is, but it feels like people intertwine their thoughts about the mm -hmm. world with their personal self. And so rejecting one is sort of like an attack on the other. Yeah, but it's not. Yeah, so I, it's I, not. Know, I know <laughs> that, you know. That. I mean, that, that's a problem. I had that in, my, in, in the lecture. So I gave a lecture that was actually a very eye-opening experience for me. So I gave a lecture, it was on, what is it? Theoretical nuclear physics. Mm. And it was on some a certain principle, it doesn't really matter now. And in, in physics there is basically, so it's called the the Lagrangian equation of motion. Mm. So it's basically a mathematical machinery. You basically plug in what we call a Lagrangian, so it's basically one equation. Mm -hmm. So the, the basic concepts of all the interactions and fields and whatnot you want to have. Mm -hmm. And then you plug it into a certain machinery mm -hmm. and you get, you get a result, equations of motion, and then you compare two experiments. That's a very easy way of mm -hmm. describing a PhD thesis, basically. Yeah. Usually it takes a while yeah. um, and has a certain supercomputer in the middle. And, yeah. <laughs> but that's basically the idea. You have a very well-defined mathematical process. You plug something in, you get something out, you compare two experiments. Yeah, to see if they match up. Exactly. Yeah. And if it matches up, oh, maybe we did something right in the beginning. Mm -hmm. If it doesn't, maybe we did something wrong in the beginning. Yeah. But it, in the end, it's basically a game of guessing. Yeah, of yeah. course, it's educated guessing because, you know, there are certain symmetries in the world which we should, well, plug into it. Mm -hmm, we mm -hmm. have certain particles we should, we know that they are there. Yeah. You're and using so, existing exactly. knowledge that's You have previous tested. knowledge, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Which you both, sometimes you can say, oh, well, I don't believe that and try something out. That's fine. That's, that's, that's science. Yeah. And I was giving that, that lecture. It was to, I think, eight semester students. And I said, okay, I have that Lagrangian and I plug that in and then I said, oh, where did you get that Lagrangian from? I said, well, well, I basically just, I didn't say that, but I pulled it out of my ass. <laughs> so I, I just thought about that and let's try it out. But you cannot do that. <laughs> why cannot, why, why can't I do that? Because it's not written in the book. We don't know whether it's right or not. Yeah, yeah. And then it was an eye opener for me because that, that, whether it's right or not, we'll find out in the end, yeah, but yeah. not in the beginning. Right. So there is no right or wrong here. It's basically trying out what works and what not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and they, they were basically physics students close to, close to their master's thesis. Yeah, okay. And they did not know how the scientific method works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of trying things out, comparing to experiment in, in our case and well then judging whether we did something which was worthwhile or well not yeah 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 but they did not know because and then i, I 
basically interrupted the lecture and talked to them about, well, why are you not? Th why are you thinking it's not right? Yeah. And they always had that. Okay, in our textbook it says we have to use this, this, and this. It was very schematically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the way of teaching, they experienced. I mean, they are good and bad teachers. Mm -hmm. But the way of teaching they experienced never taught them how to think scientifically, mm. which is a shame. Mm -hmm. Close to physics masters. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I've I've thought of that too. Just like as you know, a possible when thinking about possible solutions to get to avoid this sort of situation where nobody believes your doctor or your expert, or whatever, is that maybe it ha you have to like rather than trying to convert the people that have already just made up their mind it's you need to go a generation back and look at how we're doing education yeah absolutely you know and that's that's part of it i mean you know then there's obviously the politics of trying to reform the school curriculum yeah. and stuff but i think it's like when you think you know this idea of the scientific method and you know people haven't been taught that to me it, i i often think about like children you watch children you mm -hmm. said your your new father you watch how they learn how humans learn when they're yeah. growing up it's trial and error absolutely and that's that's so it's it's almost like the scientific method is like it's intrinsic in, absolutely in in how humans have evolved so, so i the usually people say children learn much faster than than adults mm. and that might be true however i in my mind the, the main reason why children are much better than, in learning than adults is they don't just don't give up yeah, yeah. I mean, if, 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 for example, you, I just take by snipping you, I take away the, the power of walking mm. and you cannot walk. You just lie down. Yeah. You would try to get up and you cannot because you don't know how to. Yeah. And you do it again. And then after like three or four times, you say, ah, screw it. I just get a cab. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. and somebody picks me up, but a kid tries a fourth time, a fifth time and a yeah. hundredth time and a one thousandth time. Yeah. Because that's how they do it yeah and when they know nothing else exactly yeah. and they just try and they, they are not afraid of error mm -hmm. they just try things out yeah, yeah, yeah. and if if i fall again then i fall again yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah which is beautiful it is it really is i mean and i mean yeah it's and it's you know the persistence that they have but yep. and again like not knowing anything else they have no preconceived notion of well, this should work, this shouldn't work, or I've been yeah. told this, I've and, been told that. And it it's... basically all breaks down in school. Yeah. And the current way we are basically living and doing school is, I, I believe the the first, okay, this, especially in mathematics, for example, this is wrong. Mm. Of course, there is right and wrong in mathematics, but mm -hmm. why not say, oh, you're saying three and three, three plus three is seven. Mm. Why do you think that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then get into the discussion instead of saying, no, it's wrong, it's six. Everybody knows that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is a, well... This is the book, it says exactly. it's six. Just, you know... Exactly. Repeat, repeat, this, yeah, yeah, yeah. repeat yeah. after me. Yeah. Instead of saying, okay, why do you think that? I'm basically trying to figure it out with a kid. Mm -hmm. of, of course, I mean, if you have 20 kids with you as a, as a school teacher, that's a lot, of, lot to ask. But especially when raising a kid, why not just say... Let them try out things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I mean, there's a famous example by Neil deGrasse Tyson when I said, if the egg breaks, it's 20 cents. Yeah. What is it compared to the future of your kids? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Exactly, yeah. So, I mean, obviously, yeah, like you kind of mentioned there, there's, there's an issue of time and, and everything absolutely. like that. But 
I, th- I feel like that's easily, you know, overcomable if people put a value on that, you know, if people yeah. decide that, hey, you know what, which when you think about it, teachers are, play such an important role in society yeah. and generally don't get the recognition or the, Absolutely not. or the pay for it, you know. So if you make that sort of, if society decides and I mean, then you have to, yeah. know, obviously this, it's not as easy as that. Absolutely but, not. But it's, you know, I think that's a step. And then, you know, something we kind of talked about a little bit before we were, before we were recording here is just like the, when it came up, I think is, you know, telling the stories behind mm-hmm. the science, but also the people behind it. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that's an important thing here. I mean, we can, you know, that's what I like doing with these podcasts because you, you, you talk to people, um, you know, that are scientists and you see that, oh, hey, you know, they they sound like me, you know, they might, <laughs> they look they like might, me, they look like, <laughs> they might, you know, uh, curse every once in a while, you know, like this kind of thing. They like certainly it, do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, in my experience, well, I, I always say to people, it's like, if you have gone to any scientific conference, you'll see <laughs> how normal these people really are when the open bar opens oh, up. Oh, you know? yes, oh, yes. <laughs> so I think that that's a thing um, that could also be done, but it's, yeah, I don't know. It's, it seems like it's a bit of an uphill challenge, you know, because you know, a lot of science engagement stuff. And I, I wonder, you know, you, you, and we can jump to this as well. Your, your, uh, what's it? Sorry, the name's escaping me now. The science bird, science, science bird. birds. Yeah. Yeah. So it's sort of a live thing, but it's how much of the audience is already, you know, you're already sort of preaching to the choir. Like the people that show up to these events are already, it depends what we are doing. So yeah. we have various programs. So some, for example, I just start with, I run a program which is called in German Wissenschaft zum Anfassen, mm-hmm. which is hands-on science. Mm-hmm. And we, we take some exhibits on certain physical phenom- phenomena, so nothing major. Um, well, nothing major is maybe not the right term. So it's, <laughs> we have particle accelerators, wizards and stuff like that, but sounds pretty major. It, it is major in a sense, but we also go to primary schools Yeah. and we talk to them. What do you think scientists, science is, how do scientists look like? And when you, when you, when you start, I mean, I have a 100% success chance so far. When you ask a primary school kid, how does a scientist look like? You always get the white coat mm-hmm. yeah. in the yeah, beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I never wore white coat in my life. <laughs> and I still consider myself a scientist. Yeah. So, and many scientists never did. So, and then we, we do like an hour or two of playful science and we let them experiment and we never tell them, okay, this is how it works and you should repeat this to mm-hmm, get to that mm-hmm. result. But we ask the question, sometimes we just go to an exhibit and say, what do you think it is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they have no clue because yeah. they cannot because I have never seen a superconductor or something right, like right. that because, well, most people don't do that in their physics studies. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then we, we, we ask the right questions and we, we let them experiment. And mm-hmm. sometimes it just doesn't happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it just doesn't work and then we do something else. But it's basically, they, they don't have any pre-knowledge of science. So we are basically forming their way of thinking about scientists. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So sometimes you have, when you, for example, go to a, in the school to what we call a Leistungskurs, it's a, how would you translate that? 
Like, yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> so basically, people so in Germany, basically, in the end, you have to select two subjects, which you're doing very intensively. Okay. And um, before you do your your degree in school, and the people choosing physics, obviously, they they know about physics and they want to do physics and yeah. potentially want to study physics. Um, so then it's also a bit of preaching to the choir, but then you also you get into completely different discussions. Mm-hmm. Then you you get the discussion of okay how do how does a physics how do physics studies really work and what is it really to be a scientist instead mm-hmm. of what we see in TV for example mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and in other projects for example when we do the same exhibition and we go to the Hessen talk it's a, we talked about before the yeah. before we started state it's festival state festival ten days. Everything between uh, Pratwurst and <laughs> political affairs, yeah. um, and there you have like twenty to thirty thousand people coming yeah. to the science area and experimenting with us, and they yeah. have no clue whatever is happening, whatsoever yeah. is happening. So it's basically a good mix of people who already know about what we're doing and just getting a deeper glimpse into it. Mm-hmm. Or basically, people having their first contact with science. Right, and so it's all about yeah, put, making yourselves visible to different yeah, to different audiences, and then sort of tailoring the sort yeah. of questions and the and the program to it. Yeah, I mean that's one of the things I think back home um, in Calgary they did, and I mentioned it during the the workshop that you put on is the the science festival that they mm-hmm. do every year, the Speakerhead Festival. It's mm-hmm. called. To, I don't. I haven't seen anything really like it, and it uh, to me it's a really great example of this, where you're just like, look, we're going to make it visible, mm-hmm. so people will see it, and exactly. you know, and it's and the and the point, the the goal is not necessarily to to ne- teach a, a predetermined fact. It's like come and interact exactly with yeah. the thing and that, that ask is, a question and yeah, so on. Yeah, yeah, which I think people really enjoy. I mean, I think and, yeah, people, absolutely. People like to discover things. They like to see it in action. And then they like to talk to scientists mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. I had a, that was actually quite funny. There was one lady it was quite a while ago already, but it was basically my favorite conversation I ever had at <laughs> these events. So I explained what particle accelerators are and what you can do with them because she always asked and wanted to know what can you use it for and and so on. And in the end, she said, "Yeah, that's very useful, and you really should keep doing that." Mm-hmm. Actually, who's paying for that? <laughs> I mentioned well, basically it's you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's all taxpayers' money. Yeah. To a very large degree, so it's basically you. Yeah. Oh right. What what can I do that you get more money? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And basically, she came in from having no idea what science does at all mm-hmm. to oh, this is really important. Yeah. What can I do to support you? Yeah, yeah. Which is actually quite nice. I mean, that was like half an hour, one hour conversation, yeah. which is when you look at the scales of the science communication methods, like, I don't know, a blog or newspaper articles, they, they reach like hundreds of thousands people, of people. However, not in that, in that depth. Yeah, not in that personal. Exactly. And yeah. you, you need, I think the mix is it. So, you, yeah. you, of course, you need all the science blogs and the yeah. newspaper. Yeah. And, but you also need scientists getting out being visible, talking to people, why this is important. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, so I, I, I kind of mentioned that I was the 
the group in Marburg sort of approached me to talk to the grad students and maybe develop a project for them. And they all had the idea of, you know, oh, we could do a video, we could do a podcast, mm -hmm. YouTube. And I was kind of like, you know what, though? I, like, I think these live events, I was kind of trying to yeah. maybe plant that seed because it's like, I think those are some of the best, you know? And, and if you put yourself in a situation where you are going to get, you know, and that's the right, you need, mm -hmm. you need the right conditions. Like in like Hessentog, yeah. Festival is a great one for that because people are just going to be walking by and see it. Um, yeah, no, that's really good. And then, so the science bird thing is this. How does that? What's what's that about? That's, that's basically a conglomerate of people. So, so I, I did a lot of science communication always as a hobby project. Basically, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I do a bit of the institute in the institute, but I also run um, like talks. For example, I run a program which is called Physics in Hollywood, mm -hmm. which is quite popular by now. Um, it's basically the idea is does the science in Hollywood movies work? Ah, uh, yes. So, yeah. for example, if James Bond does this and that, does it actually work? Yeah. Or when Spider-Man saves Mary Jane with a with a spider web, yeah. does it actually work? And so on and so on. Right, right. Star Wars lightsabers. Is so you're ruining movies for people. Well, no. sometimes <laughs> sometimes it works as well. So also you don't really some, some get it right. Yeah. I I try to again I t I try to tell a story of. Well, the string of things that don't work and then surprisingly some, something works. And it's always 80% comedy, but it's also 20% science. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the idea is, and it actually made it to, to um, theaters and, and stages all across Germany. Um, but the idea is basically tell a nice story, have a, have a good laugh. Mm -hmm. But in the end, there are equations. Mm. So people actually, they pay good money <laughs> to see a physics lecture. Oh. So it's basically in the in end. In secret, like it's disguised. It's, it's, a, it's a disguised physics lecture in the yeah. end. Again, it's 20%. 80% is basically commenting movies and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and doing that. But it, in the end, that's, that's my, uh, well, approach, if you like. In the end, I always explain scientifically what happens mm. and with equations mm -hmm. and i run it from schools to to companies to to theaters and especially in schools the feedback is always like yeah we are glad that you also really explain stuff mm -hmm. yeah. so that, that's the, one of the main things i do i run a an experimental show which is called together with a colleague um, which is called the quantum mechanics mm which is basically the, the idea is I am the theoretical physicist and my colleague is the experimental physics, so the quantum and the mechanic. Ah, okay. So <laughs> he actually also comes in a mechanic outfit. <laughs> and then we basically blow up things on, on stage. Which so, people love. Which always works, so yeah, it's, yeah. it's always fun. So, but it's always explaining things. Yeah. And so I, I run a bit of things. So other colleagues actually ran courses on science and science communication and other stages like science slam. And so we basically all put, put together a project which is called Science Birds, mm -hmm. where we basically offer everything. If somebody wants to have X, Y, and that, mm -hmm. <clears throat> they basically approach us and we, we, we see what we can do. Ah, so it's like tailor-made sort of events. Or exactly. Something. So you want, yeah. the, the last thing, that was actually fun. We had a, a funeral slam. Whoa. That, that was fun. <laughs> it doesn't sound like fun, but yeah. it was fun. So there was, uh, how would you call it? It's, um, 
the graveyard gardeners of Frankfurt contacted us okay. by some contacts. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think went a couple of loops, and they want they had the problem that um, not enough visitors are coming to the graveyard, yeah. which in Germany now, as I learned, is a big problem because people, I mean. You think at some point everybody has to visit, yeah. but it's not the case because yeah. there are other options where you can actually bury yourself. Yeah. And they, they have something like a day of the open door, and which doesn't sound too fun at a graveyard. Yeah. And they want to try <laughs> things out to have new concepts, new, right. new formats to, to reach people. And they saw we're doing that science slam thing and... They approached us, what can we do to make graveyards more visible and more interesting that yeah. a younger generation actually comes and visits and actually thinks about death, in a sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the role of the, exactly. of the graveyard. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And usually the wizard, visitors are, uh, let's say, 70 plus. Yeah. And they wanted to have visitors more like in the well younger mm -hmm. age region. And what we came up with, there was, uh, it's called the Funeral Slam. We invited um, a couple of preachers and um, people speaking at funerals. Okay, so yeah. Professionals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funeral. I, yeah. I, I, I don't know what the English term is. I, I'm not even sure. I don't know what the Trauer Redner in German. But the, I know the, there's an English term. I yeah. just can't think of it so, right so now. But, yeah. Basically, people giving the last honors yeah, at a funeral. Yeah, yeah not preachers sometimes they're preachers sometimes not yeah and however we said okay we give you people like two weeks or a week in advance and you basically give us a speech on this person mm. for example one person who died was a uh, batman <laughs> or james bond or okay goethe yeah. or yeah. um who else died people like that. marie curie actually also died again right right so we said, okay, we, we mix basically um, fictional characters. Homer Simpson, yeah. uh, he died. Uh, fictional characters and people who really died at some point, but yeah. uh, it was a long time ago, so right. nobody's really affected anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we let them give a speech on these people. Yeah, yeah. And then the, the audience can vote which they like best and so on. So. It was actually really, really funny and very well made. Yeah. yeah because yeah. you had you had professional thinking about okay, how can I let Batman die? <laughs> or James Bond. <laughs> so and you had a room you had roughly two hundred people, that was uh, the maximum capacity of the, the hall. Yeah. Within in the main funeral hall of Frankfurt. And well, people thought about death and funerals in a different way after that yeah so things like that we're doing also other things so everything that's fun and scientific in some shape or form we do wow that's great that's great um and you do you so do you have a website or anything for oh yeah it's sciencebirds.de dot de okay. yeah we're german so yeah. <laughs> sorry for the pronunciation as well <laughs> if you get that far you you probably realized <laughs> yeah yeah i think so i think so yeah well that's yeah that's really cool um i mean we've been we've been going for for about an hour here so it's usually about the yeah. time where people start to get tired yeah but if you're doing okay we'll keep going a bit yep. yeah because I, I wanted to i mean i'm a little torn now as to where to take this because i got a couple more specific science things something at the um 
specifically here at the Institute, one of the things, one of the projects that caught my eye was the supercomputing project. Okay. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, uh, because it, how is it described? Exascale? Exascale? Exoscale? Exoscale? Yeah. Do you um, know this one? I think that is a, is that the physics one? I think it was, yeah, I think it was in the, in the physics. Exahype. Exahype. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's uh, the gravitational wave people. Yeah. So it, it seemed to me like they were designing a, uh, or wanted to use supercomputing to map like these really complex systems, like yeah, earthquakes yeah. and you exactly. know, blood in your body and, and mm -hmm. this kind of stuff. But my, my question really was just like, this isn't a, what they're working on, because I didn't really understand it. So <laughs> <laughs> it is not really working on hardware advance. It's like a software, like algorithm sort of. Yes, so we're looking at it from different angles, but we have uh, one person actually doing it from an implementation point of view, so hardware. Mm -hmm. So one of, one of the main things actually being developed here, which is actually quite application-based, which is fun for institute doing fundamental research, mm -hmm. but it went into application very fast, um, was um, basically building supercomputers from standard components, okay. and uh, the, which is nothing new in a sense. However, the implementation is the, the interesting part, and the cooling. Right, keeping so, the components cool. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the one thing you have to do with computers, the one big problem with computers is, I mean, building a supercomputer is easy. Mm. If you have an infinite amount of space yeah. and an infinite amount of energy, Right. To cool it and to, to power it. Right. That, that's easy. Yeah. So everybody can do that. You just go to, I don't know, uh, whatever your favorite website where you order stuff and yeah. order like 2 billion yeah. GPU, CPUs, whatever <laughs> you want to have and plug them all together. Yeah. But the challenge nowadays is basically to have computers which are with, with a given amount of energy as efficient as possible. Right. So that's where, for example, the green 500 list comes in. You, right. Most of the people know the top 500 list with the fastest supercomputers, okay. yeah. which is a feat in itself. But as I said, if you have an infinite amount of resources, pretty easy. Yeah. However, to build it as efficient as possible in a certain amount of space and certain amount of cooling power and so on, that's basically the, the challenge nowadays. Yeah, because I think people, I actually wrote a piece uh, this year about some new sort of computing thing. It's not the point, but the thing that popped out of me when I was doing research of that is that the computing sort of industry or like not industry, but like all of us using computers and using all that takes more energy and has a bigger carbon footprint than the aviation. I, I can imagine. Yeah. That yeah. And that's, yeah, that's what the Absolutely. scientists there were telling me. And I was like, I don't think people really realize that, yep. you know, the, the amount of power that we use with our computers. And Absolutely. Stuff. So this, that's sort of what this project is kind of exactly. So the, one of the components, the person doing that is actually well, developing systems, which are as energy efficient as possible, mm -hmm. but still are supercomputers. So yeah. of course, I mean, the most energy efficient computer is none. So but yeah. still doing computing on a supercomputer level. Mm -hmm. So for example, the, the GSI, which is a big particle accelerator complex, just like 20, 30 kilometers south of here, um, they're using one of these supercomputers to basically have their data processed. Yeah. And the, the big new thing about at that time was the cooling. So we have the, the water cooling, but not close to the components, but within the doors, hmm. which then you can build a huge water circulation and it's very energy efficient. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So that, that's it, basically done on the hardware side. Right. So it's more, yeah, it's more about finding clever sort of engineering exactly. fixes yeah. to, to cool and, and but then these things. The other side is, and that's where the, for example, the ExaHype and all the um, other projects here come in is basically on the algorithms. Right. So what can I do? Again, if, if I give you infinite amount of resources, you can write the shittiest code you've ever written yeah. and you still get a result in zero time. Yeah. <laughs> so because you have infinite amount of computing power. Yeah. However, if I say, and that's where scientific computing power, but in all other areas as well, is you basically write now proposals for computing power. Hmm. So instead of saying, I want, I don't know, 10,000 euros here, you're right, I want to have as many computing hours on this cluster. Mm. So it's basically a big national thing and it's a competition who gets computing power nowadays. Ah, so there's a real, yeah. There's it's a, a competition. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, yeah. If you have a good project, there's usually scientific evaluation. Yeah. And that's basically where it becomes interesting. And then it becomes, okay, if I have, I don't know, what is it, 10,000 hours of computing time mm -hmm. for spread over all the processes and GPUs and whatnot, um, then you want to make sure that you use them properly. Right, efficiently. Yeah. Efficiently, yes. Yeah, yeah. And you don't want to waste your time. Exactly, yeah. because you only got as many as you applied for. So your code has to be stable and it has to be well-made and has to be parallel, uh, parallel and so on. Mm -hmm. And that's basically a couple of projects here at the Institute even. So we had a physics code, which was written in, I don't know, the 90s. I actually did my PhD with this code. Okay. And I, at, at that time, actually, I, I basically started, well, not started, it was was very small part in that. So we had one routine. That's basically one of the codes simulating heavy ion collisions. So coming back to the very beginning. Right. So we, we take gold on gold and we smash it together and I wanted to look for a certain particle, um, how it tracked through the, through the collision. And that was very computational heavy at that time. Yeah. And there was an old routine which figured out how it can be done. And so I looked at it and I'm not a good programmer at all. However, I looked at it, oh, it has to be done more efficiently. Yeah. And I wrote a program with a little help of a friend who's an IT guy and it actually was faster by a factor of 100 hmm. which is not because we are so good because in the 90s <laughs> this was state-of-the-art yeah, yeah, yeah so but just by writing it again it became faster by a factor of 100 yeah. th this small routine um, and here at the Institute some people sat together and said okay what can we actually do to have the whole program run faster? And then some IT guys looked over it and parallelized it. And, and roughly three years later, the whole program was faster by a factor of 100 or 400, depending mm -hmm. on what you look at. Yeah. And that's just by having different, different groups of people looking at exactly. it, refining it. Yeah. By working interdisciplinary. Because, yeah, yeah. I mean, physicists, whenever you, a physicist, physicist program something you can you can be absolutely sure it works yeah it will be shitty code but it works <laughs> if you have an it guy looking at it it will be nice code it will be efficient yeah whether it works or gives a result is not really important yeah but combining those two powers basically yeah, is yeah. then you have an efficient code yeah which actually produces results yeah so and the, the specific results that you are looking you to want find. exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. So, yeah, which is a nice idea. Yeah, that's that was, and that's also part of the exile where where you basically find ways of certain well physical prob uh, problems on supercomputers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it seemed like that was a really one that kind of stuck out to me when I was you know just perusing through mm -hmm. the website and stuff too, because you have the neuroscience stuff going on, yeah. and then also some of the the economic stuff that you said, mm -hmm. and the, then there's the supercomputing thing. And I mean, you can see the links right there of how, yeah. you know, in neuroscience, you know, mapping brain and artificial intelligence and all this kind of stuff, you'd require, you're mm -hmm. gonna need these computing tools. Absolutely. Yeah, so, and even then in the economic stuff, it was, I think it was about predicting risk and everything like this. You can yeah, imagine risk analysis. this is gonna take, you know, loads of computing power. And like you said, if you had all the resources, then it wouldn't be a problem. But but you don't. Yeah, exactly. It's very simple. And I think it's a good point that you made that it's like, you know, bringing the people who need the, the algorithm, who need the results, mm -hmm. and talking to someone who actually does that. Because I, I noticed this too, just in my PhD, when I'm, you know, I was working in genetics. So you would have to have, um, you know, small programs to search through mm -hmm. databases or whatever it is, you know. And I think every grad student has this problem and more so now, they all have to mm -hmm. kind of know how to code in R or Python or mm -hmm. something like this. But it's like you said, they're just trying to get the result. Like they don't care exactly. about the code. They don't care, you know. It doesn't have to be maintainable. It hasn't, yeah. doesn't have to be efficient and so on. And if you're the student that gets that from the postdoc, Pat, this is what I use. Exactly. Just use it. Just, and you know. Don't and ask you, questions. Don't, Post yeah. the button. Yeah, exactly. So it's not, not the best way. But, and yeah. I think it's something that I don't, I think people don't think about is like, you know, because we're like, oh, well, quantum computing, if we do these things, then we'll have all the, but it's like, there's probably a lot of value in just removing the waste in uh, some absolutely. of these things that we already have. So it's cool that there's there, a there project was a, doing that. There was a nice initiative. I read about that. I, I didn't follow it through, but I think it was an astrophysics professor or postdoc or any, I think it was an ast astrophysics guy, let's call him yeah. that way. Uh, and he said, okay, the programs we are using to actually do the analysis we are doing are from the 80s. Yeah, that's... So I refuse to keep working when we are doing that. Yeah. So <laughs> we have to, we are talking about developing next generation stuff, but we are using programs which are working for more than, I don't know, we are alive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I always said, okay... You cannot use a program as a joke. I, I use programming languages where the compilers are older than I am. Yeah. So, doesn't which make sense. Th that doesn't make sense. Yeah. Exactly. But this kind of goes to like sometimes you know everybody wants the fancy new technology, right? But not mm. not thinking about these sort of things. Yeah. It's like yeah, just give me the faster computer. Exactly. And, and I'll still write my shitty code on it. And exactly. Like, well, but if you have a shitty code and a fast computer, the code is still shitty. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so just. If you can actually make sure that you use it on the laptop, if you have somebody look over your code who actually knows what he or she is doing, yeah. please do so. Yeah. Well, it's right, and I know, in, again, in the genetics area, that we minded, they actually brought in um, a bioinformatics professional to work in the department, hmm. you know, just for these kind of things, yeah. right? Like, who it's like, so he's a little, you know, bioinformatics is obviously computing, but for biology mm -hmm. specifically. But it was just like, and it seemed like, you know, just like a no-brain. Why hadn't we done this ten years, yeah. five years ago, ten years? This is a guy that can just infinitely speed up all of these projects that people are working on. There, yeah. There's an, an well internal pro problem in the system, I would say, because this kind of work is in the current scientific system we have, at least in Germany. I don't know how it is in 
in other places, it's not really re rewarded. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. if you have the, the standard scientific career, basically you, you do your studies, I take again physics as an example, um, you do your studies, you do the you do your PhD, you do the postdocs, one, two, and three maybe, yeah. and then you apply for faculty positions done. And you always stay within your narrow topic and hope somebody think it's fancy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you actually, we have a couple of people, that's also a small problem at the institute here. So being an interdisciplinary institute, you cannot be as interdisciplinary as you want because if you produce PhD students, or produce in, in the sense of graduate them, yeah. And they are interdisciplinary, they just won't find jobs in science. Right. Because the scientific culture right. is still monodisciplinary in right. statistically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. So that that's a big problem. I mean mm -hmm. if you for example take uh right, biophysics now is pretty much accepted, but um if you take somebody who works in in various on the let's say optimizing codes in for physics mm. just staying in that example in the it world in the computer science world he's basically like okay you are just doing the footwork for somebody else you're just like um well you deliver a product you're not doing science yeah. but in in physics you're really high you're the it guy right so yeah. but you're actually doing relevant science and progressing basically on the well on the cross link yeah but if you actually want to have a job the, it's still very monodisciplinary yeah which is something we have to change yeah i agree i mean I, I think a lot of people even face this problem when they're looking at okay i've done a phd i've done graduate school or whatever um and i know that i'm not going to go into research or academia mm -hmm. it's like they feel like they have no skills for any other job yeah. because they've been so trained and it's not necessarily true. I mean, you, you Absolutely do, not. you do gain skills along the way that you yep. can then market, but it's getting people in, within science, I think to respect that, you know, yep. we all, you know, the grad student has learned all these different things and yep. should be, yeah. Like you say, like encouraged to like be interdisciplinary. Yeah. But I wonder if that's changing though. I, I kind of it, slowly. Yeah. But I mean, if you if you look at the, I mean, now you can actually study bioinformatics, as you said. Yeah. yeah. You can study biophysics. You can yeah. study neuroscience in some places. So it's yeah. it's slowly changing, but it yeah. takes a while. Because it, it feels like it's one of those things that you always see in like press releases or like you know these kind of things where they're trying to promote science when the institutions they're like interdisciplinary. Mm -hmm. It's like the word that they get that's thrown yeah, out yeah. all the time. It's, it's a buzzword. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but it's still still a big problem that you actually you should encourage it more, but you also should live it basically when you hire people. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Which is unfortunately not done as much as we should do it right now. Yeah, people aren't walking the walk. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I feel like we could probably go on and on and on, but <laughs> let's let's cut it off here. We should do this yep, again. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, I just I'll say thank you again for for having me down to the institute and agreeing to do this. It, it was a great great discussion. Um, if you have any sort of websites or anything, you know, you gave the sciencebirds.de. Yes. Uh, if there's anything else, you know, that you want to 
let people know. Totally, yeah, it's sciencebirds.de. Have a look at physics in Hollywood. That is usually great fun. It's also available in English. Ah, okay, cool. Uh, there's a German version on YouTube, but I don't know whether the English version is up yet. Okay. So we're currently working on the social media stuff. Right, right, right. But uh, apart from that, thank you for having me. Yeah, no problem. That was great. All yeah. right. And thank we'll, you. Uh, we'll leave it there. And there we have it, friends. Another conversation episode done. Uh, another great conversation, if I do say so myself. I really enjoyed speaking with Sasha. Uh, I hope you enjoyed listening. Um, like I said in the intro, I think he's just a really interesting guy. Um, very engaging guy to talk to. Uh, if you get a chance and you're in Germany to, to, to see him, um, I recommend you do for our German listeners, although he does, uh, I believe, tour the physics in Hollywood uh, internationally. I don't know if it's made it to North America yet, but uh, definitely in Europe. So if you're listening from any of our European countries, uh, go to sciencebirds.de, uh, check it out. Um, and yeah, just a big thanks for having him on. Uh, can't wait to do it again. Um, if you want to give the show a follow, please do at Two Brad for You. That's on Twitter, Instagram. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at B Van Paradon. Our website, Two Brad for You. WordPress.com. You can go there and check out check out all the episodes, um, show notes to some of the shows, links, that kind of stuff. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you so much to the Freak Motif um, for for allowing us to use the music. Um, I can't think of their website right now, so Google Freak Motif and go there. You'll find them. They're great. They're on Bandcamp and SoundCloud, I believe. Sorry, boys. I dropped the ball on that one. Um, and then Sebastian Abood. SebastianAbood.com. Check him out. Great graphic designer. Living the life out on the west coast of Canada, Vancouver Island. He did the artwork for the show. Uh, he's a, a big help. He's helped me out with any sort of logo thing that I've ever needed for any of the podcasts that I've done so he's been a big supporter uh, since the beginning so always want to shout out to Seb um, and if you haven't checked out my other podcast Cast of the Unplucked Gems it's also on iTunes, Stitcher uh, all those great places uh, podcast dedicated to uh, going album by album through the catalog of the Tragically Hip, the great Canadian band, the Tragically Hip. Gotta promote that because I am honestly just having such a blast doing it, as I am having such a blast doing these conversation episodes. Um, we're hoping to get some more uh, queued up for January, um, and we're hoping to find find uh, my co-host Brad and get him back in here for uh, at least a year-end special. Um, but we'll see what we can do. Uh, so until then, thank you always for listening and, uh, have a good one and we will see you next time. Bye now.